Welcome back to LGB Time Machine, an LGBTQ plus history podcast on the Orange Groves Network. This is Theo, and this episode is extra special because I have a guest with me in this time machine today. This episode, one of my best friends, Smith, is joining us to tell us all about Charlotte Cushman and her Roman artist colony. Introduce yourself, Smith. Hi, I'm Smith. They, them pronouns. Um, I'm a non-binary lesbian, and... Uh, freelance illustrator, but before that, I studied history. Heck yeah, you did. <laughs> so, things are going to be a bit different today, because for once, I'm not the expert. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm ever an expert in anything, I'm just like a weird history nerd who <laughs> got their degree in this, but uh, today, Smith is the knowledgeable one, and I'm just here to learn and provide color commentary. Uh, no pressure, but yeah. I'll, yeah. Try, I'll do my best to fill Theo's shoes. <laughs> so, uh... Tell us about Charlotte Cushman. Okay, well, this story, um, I stumbled across while I was still in school, the one one 1800s history class I took, but I stumbled first upon a woman named Emma Conn Crow, and I was quickly led to Charlotte Cushman, um, who despite being probably the most famous stage actress of the 1800s, has sort of faded into history for some reason. Oh, what could it be? Yeah, that's kind of weird because, like, I'm a theater... My full-time job is in theater, and I don't think I'd ever heard of this person before. Exactly. Um, History hates the gays. History hates the gays. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end, um, sort of what happened after her death that led to her not taking her proper place in history. Yikes. Um, so Charlotte Cushman was born on July 23rd, 1816, which makes her a Cancer Leo cusp, just like me. Um, I knew there was a reason you like this person. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. She's sort of a bastard. I'm not sure I like her. Oh, wow. But I'm obsessed with her. That's fair. I feel like that tends to be the way with queer history, like, icons yeah. is... Some of them are really great, some, like, and got treated like shit in their time, which is really sad and annoying, and some of them were, like, utter shit, but they did some really iconic things. Exactly. So, like, you can't hate them, because what an icon. Yeah. My my heart aches for her, but also, mm, does it? Valid. (laughs) Um, so she was born the daughter of a well-off merchant, but, um, when she was a teenager, his business tanked, and shortly thereafter, he died, (laughs) and so she turned to the stage to make a living, um, and became the family's main source of income. Uh, first she started in the opera, but her voice didn't really have the, uh, strength to last Mm. through the rigorous performance schedule, so her mentors suggested she turn to straight plays. (laughs) <laughs> straight place. Straight parents. When repeat what year she was born again? 1816. Okay, so this is past when actors were of ill repute. This is back uh, when they're like they're slowly but surely like no one knows if they like them or if they're all heathens, but like they're not going to get murdered at the cross anymore. Yes. Great. Um so she quickly rose to uh, a certain level of fame especially for her roles her breeches roles oh yes her first part that got really famous was she played romeo in romeo and juliet get this across from her sister Ah. as juliet but they sort of leaned on that familial relationship to 
to avoid the specter of scandal, mm. saying, oh, nothing weird could be going on here. They're sisters. Um, but the women in the audience were very taken by a Romeo who, uh, embraced, who, uh, embodied both male and female strengths, so to speak. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> that's, that's pretty hot, TBH. Yeah. Um, so she gained some fame in the U.S. She, um, also started to perform in England, across the pond. Um, her other breaches roles included Hamlet and Cardinal Wolsey, um, and then she also acted as Lady Macbeth, Meg Merrilies, and Queen Catherine, um, which you'll notice a lot, even her uh, non-breaches roles aren't necessarily women considered feminine or beautiful in the traditional sense. Yeah. In fact, critiqued often as masculine. Like, Lady Macbeth, everyone's like, she's not a woman, she's a man! Yeah, I was like, I just had flashbacks <laughs> to Kimmel's English class yeah. with all of the photos of Macbeth and... I mean, I like that class because it definitely made me run a route for Lady Macbeth more than yes. anyone else, but I can't get the image of the dagger and the knife oh, and the yes. sword art that she showed us yes. <laughs> out of my mind. And yeah. Yeah. It, Shakespeare really didn't like strong women. No. Um, every time in theater, it's a very common, like, at least a couple times a year, someone in theater that I work at is like, you know, Shakespeare might have been a woman. There's, there's like, evidence that she just... It's always a man, by the way, who says Yeah. This. And every one of us who's, like, not a man... Yeah. ...is like, um, no woman would write women... Like that. ...badly. <laughs> like, um, uh, no. No. Yeah. So, um... Well, some said that she was forced into these parts by her large frame and her square-jawed face, um, which I'll, I'll find a picture for you. She okay. wasn't exactly a looker. Okay. Um, but she had this captivating presence, everyone said, and her masculine strength made her uh, a powerful force on the stage, let's put it that way. She was butch. Yeah, basically she was butch. Good. Um, we'll get more into her gender nonconformity later, Hell but... Yeah. Um, so she made it a point throughout her life to surround herself with other women in the arts, um, including several female lovers. Um, the first of which was Rosalie Sully, who was a painter. Um, and then Matilda Hayes, um, who was a journalist and writer. <laughs> um, so she, in 1852... Moved with Matilda Hayes, um, her lover, uh, her friends Harriet Hosmer and Grace Greenwood, a sculptor and a writer, respectively, and her, um, I want to say valet. She was technically a maid, but she more played the role of valet or personal assistant, Sally okay. Mercer, okay. who was a free black woman. Um, and throughout her life, Charlotte often said that Sally was the only person who really loved her and understood her. Um, probably because she was to, you know? Yeah. Like, she was performing emotional labor. Um, yeah, like, uh, I hate to be the one to say this, but I feel like the universe in this society that we currently live in still needs the reminder that, um, people you pay to take care of you slash to be your friends, it, it, <sighs> there's a dynamic there. Yeah. Like, I don't want to say they're never your friend, but I definitely, as like, 
the person I'm the ASM to, I'm going to bend over backwards to do what they need because they yeah. pay me to be that yeah. for them. And Even when you're not at work, they're still your boss. There's the additional dynamic here, too, of being a black woman in the 1800s. Yeah. And when you have a good job, you do what you can to not lose it. Yep. Um, because you never know if your next boss will be better or worse. Yeah. Um. So, yikes. So, yeah. There was that. That, that was going on. Um, mm-hmm. but I say personal assistant or valet versus maid because she did, um, she handled all of the travel arrangements. Um, when she was on tour, she handled costuming. Um, so she did more than just clean the house and, yeah. um, manage the household. Um, so Charlotte was at this point considering retiring permanently to Rome. Um, she was considering a place to retire after making money on her U.S. farewell tours. Like any rock star, she had many, many, many farewell tours. Oh, good. Of Pretty course. much every time she visited the U.S. from this point on, it was marketed as, this is your last chance to see Charlotte Cushman. Oh, my God. The legend. Um, so they lived in the same neighborhood that Keats had before them, um, by the Spanish Steps and the Bernini Fountain. Mm-hmm. I have never been to Rome. I haven't either. It means nothing to me, but... It sounds fancy. Yep. I think I think one of those might have been... No, Cheetah Girls didn't go to Rome. They went to Spain. Never mind. You're thinking of Lizzie McGuire? Yeah, I think I'm thinking of <laughs> Lizzie McGuire. You're right. I was like, one of those might have been in... Is the Bernini Fountain the fountain? No, I think that's the Trevi Fountain. Yes. But I feel like there were steps involved somewhere. Yeah, probably. They went on a moped all around. I'm, yeah. We must have seen something It was in probably in the montage. Um... So, at the time, it was actually cheaper to live in Rome than in the U.S., which will probably sound shocking to modern-day listeners. Um, There were many United States expatriates, especially artists in the area. Um, People would describe that models would just line up the Spanish steps, like, sort of posing, hoping that an artist would notice them and hire them. Yeah. So Charlotte, while in Rome, mostly worked uh, to secure commissions for her artist friends, um, Harriet, a sculptor, um, and Grace Greenwood, a writer. Uh, She didn't work formally in Rome, but she was often performing at parties. She loved to play the role of hostess, um, and many people actually critiqued her, men especially, um, for being too egotistical, always seeking the spotlight, never being... Uh, earnest and genuine in interpersonal interaction. And see, I'm torn because, like, that's sometimes a really valid critique. Yeah. And when you first said perform at parties, my first thought was, like, did someone ask you to do that or did you just want the spotlight? But then men gave the critique and now I hate them and I have to support her. Yeah. So, like... And I always get the sense that she was, when men were around, was never her true self. Which is... Fair, because I know, in especially in history, there are so many times of that, because especially in this century, in that century, it's, you know, there's a very specific way you're supposed to exist, and if you don't want to, like, get into huge-ass trouble when you're around those with power, yeah. you kind of have to do that. So, the people, all of the women in her circle were often described by men as manly. Mm-hmm. Um, by men, that was an insult. Yeah. But even the women would say, oh, Charlotte's so manly. She's so masculine. But for them, it was praise. Yeah. 
Um, and it, that referred to both her physical appearance and her attitude. Um, back to her gender nonconformity. Yeah. Matilda Hayes, um, Charlotte Cushman, and Harriet, a.k.a. Hattie Hosmer, um, all rocked the look of a tailored waistcoat on top of their uh, full skirts that you might associate with the 1800s. And, like, none of the lace and ruffles on the sleeves or, and the bows. Um, so that was what gender nonconformity looked like if you weren't fully trying to pass as a man. Dude, I'm gay. In the 1800s, yeah. <laughs> um, and so many women were fascinated by them. And sometimes it was hero worship of, like, oh, look at this woman succeeding in the arts. She's an independent woman who doesn't need a man. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it was certainly, uh, shall we say, erotic. Um, <laughs> which I, I identify as the age old, uh, queer lady struggle of, do I want to be her or date her? Right. <laughs> There's a lot of times in this where it's just like, mm, I see you. Same. <laughs> um, Hattie in particular, while the others were described as men, Hattie, everyone said, oh, she's so boyish. She's just like a little boy. Um, one quote. From Matilda even says, the funniest little creature, not at all coarse, rough, or slangy, but like a little boy. <laughs> she was younger than the others. The others were in their 40s, and she was in her 20s. Ah. So she's the baby butch. She is the baby butch. <laughs> um, well, it's also interesting, because I feel like nowadays, again, I'm speaking as like a 24-year-old, so I who hmm. started exploring with gender and sexuality at like 15. I think that's when I came out. It was sophomore year. I don't remember. But there was definitely a time when, like, that boyish thing was, like, the goal. Yes. And now I'm 24 and I'm like, one day I won't look like a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah. One day. One day. But it's, it's so interesting because, I, like, that was, for a while, that was the goal. Like, that kind of androgyny of... The Peter Pan look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, like, that's when everyone was getting, like, the pixie cuts. Not, like, the full undercut thing, but, like... Yeah. The Peter, it's like literally a Peter Pan haircut is like one of the names of this yes. haircut. So there was that. Um, so Matilda and Charlotte were starting to grow apart, even as they made this big move to Rome together. Mm-hmm. Um, Matilda even had an affair with Hattie at one point, but that was not the final straw in Charlotte and Matilda's relationship. Of course not. Um so they went back and forth between London and Rome for a while based on Charlotte, whether Charlotte wanted to return to the stage or thought, oh, no, I'm retiring again. Again. <laughs> but people often commented on how passionate their relationship was um, and that they often fought both verbally and sometimes even physically. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like it was mostly instigated instigated by Matilda. Okay. Um, that Matilda would sometimes, like, chase Charlotte around the house, like, hitting her or throwing things at her. Mm, I hate that. Hate that. Hate yeah, that we lot. don't like Matilda. No. Not at all. No. Physical abuse is still abuse, even when it's women. Yes. And many even commented on sort of that because of the passion Matilda displayed, that threatened to expose the lesbian nature of the relationship. That because, like, that was how lovers acted. You know? Haha, <laughs> violent men! Uh, throwaway line there. I hate that. Yeah. Also, um, it's... I know this isn't 
but like currently we're in the 21st century can we stop using the word passion to, to describe, describe toxic relationships yeah. because i feel like that's still a line that i see all the time in every movie yeah and we're still like media is still trying to convince us that if he screams at you and he chases you he really cares yeah. about you i'm like um, like he couldn't help it he was in the throes of romance i hate that and i hate yeah. that she could have been outed by her shittiness because that's what partners are supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and so so I think part of that was that, like, violence was an additional transgression against the performance of female gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to, you know, not being married to a man and living your life surrounded by women, you also behave like a man in some way. Yeah. Um, which I don't know about that, but... Uh, so around this time, Charlotte was introduced to Emma Stebbins, an American sculptor who, uh, was from a well-off family pursuing art against her family's wishes. Um, she was the same age as Charlotte and they just hit it off. They started spending a lot of time together and Matilda was getting jealous. So the final climactic incident in their relationship was, uh, that Matilda was, suspicious charlotte was writing a letter to emma stebbins and matilda said can i read that and and charlotte shoved it in her mouth (laughs) like a child and chewed it up and matilda started chasing her around the house i guess thinking she would still read it (laughs) somehow (laughs) um which was witnessed both by sally mercer and hattie um and at that point, Matilda moved out for the best. Probably for the best. Um, yeah. She shoved it in her mouth. Like, yeah, She ate it. Charlotte how, fucking ate how it. How gay was this letter? <laughs> I wish I knew. Pretty damn gay, apparently. Also, I... Not to be that dude, infidelity is never the answer, even in response to infidelity, but like... Matilda cheated on... Matilda cheated. First. And Matilda seems to be the instigator of all the violence in the relationship. Yeah. So, like, so, I'm glad she moved out, but also... You're the one who's cheating. Why is it when your partner's writing a letter... Is it because... Maybe it's because she was already cheating, so she just assumed that Charlotte was cheating, too. And I it, guess. It, I but, I, so, right. in April 1857, uh, Matilda sued... Charlotte, for, uh, on the premise that she put aside her writing career career to be Charlotte's companion. Um, and so it was basically suing her for lost income, I guess. Um, she got, we don't know the exact amount, but one to $2,000, which in that time, 1800s money. Hold up, I want to look this up. So that was at most $60,000 in today's money. Damn. 30 yeah. to 60000 So... A year's um, income, probably. A, a year's income. Probably. well off. Yeah, for a writer, I'm gonna say that's, that's two or three years. Yeah, I was like, hi, I'm a freelance writer, and I don't make anywhere nope. near that a year on my writing. No. Uh, so, she went back to writing, she went back to England, um, and founded a feminist literary journal with some friends. Alright. That she was also very much on the outskirts of the, the feminist and suffragette scene in England um, because lesbians are always pushed to the outside of feminist yeah. movements. I mean, feminist movements 
uh, not to call anyone out, but uh, historically have always been for white, cis, het, upper middle class women. I wrote my entire undergrad thesis on that. It, uh, I mean, there's a reason the term white feminism exists. There's yeah. a reason the term intersectionality is so important. Um, if your feminism isn't including people who are queer, if it isn't including women of color, uh, if it isn't including trans women, like, you're, you're, your feminism's pretty damn shitty. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess, and I mean, in my thesis, I even wrote about that. Like, it makes sense that in the 1800s, yeah, that was still the case because we just repeat phrases from 50 years ago and yeah. claim it's a new thought now. So, had yeah. to start somewhere. <laughs> so, in addition to her journal, she also wrote a novel that is very obviously about her relationship with Charlotte Cushman, okay. about like a young promising woman who's corrupted by an actress. Yikes! Yeah. Yikes! Have lesbians changed? No. No. <laughs> Not at all. Again. Speaking of, by July, so three months after the suing, uh huh, Charlotte and Emma Stebbins are living together. You hauling? Wait, like that's a a quick move on. But I yes. mean, we already knew it. we. That letter was gay enough that she shoved it in her mouth and ate it. So yeah. there must have been already feelings there. Uh, so their household included Hattie, Hattie lived with them, and there was always room for a rotating cast of Charlotte's visiting friends. Of course. Uh, <laughs> they, um, started using the language of both family and marriage to describe their bonds. Um, Har Harriet would refer to Charlotte as a mother, but both Harriet and Charlotte would call Emma Stebbins their wife. Despite Charlotte and Emma being very clearly in a committed relationship. And also, Emma is the same age as Charlotte, which puts her about 20 years older than... Thereabouts. I think part of it is hinting at the fact that Emma Stebbins played a more femme role. That she was the wife of the house, mm. the little lady, um. while Hattie and Charlotte were the butches. That's my take on it, at least. Okay. Not necessarily historically accurate, but... I mean, hate to break it to you, but 90% of history that we know is a historian's take on it that we have no idea if it's really accurate or not because I yeah. didn't exist 3,000 years ago. Can't say. Um, so they used the language they had available to them, which was sometimes inaccurate and sometimes uncomfortably Freudian. Checks <laughs> out. Yep. Um, they would also reclaim pejorative language, just as, like, we do today. They would jokingly call themselves jolly bachelors and old maids. Uh, Emma Stebbins' family was not pleased at the relationship with Charlotte Cushman. I bet. But society at large and many of their friends said that Emma Stebbins, uh, improved Charlotte, made her more ladylike and more palatable, uh, socially. <laughs> Uh, her dress definitely became more feminine, for one thing. She wears more, like, straightforward dresses than the waistcoats and, uh, skirts, which, who knows. Interesting. Uh, and it definitely improved Charlotte's social standing, since, uh, she was pretty middle class, and Emma Stubbins came from a very well-off-upper-class family. Yeah. Um, Charlotte was the matriarch of the scene, and her career always sort of eclipsed Emma's. Uh, but some of the people in the scene in Rome, the other expatriates, looked down on her for being an actress. 
and per- still being seen as performing in social settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, though even Emma Stebbins was sort of anti-theater. Uh, and she seemed happiest when Charlotte was off stage and retired. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> so while we're definitely at the, like, you can be middle class and in the theater and even have good connections and be in the theater, we're not totally there yet to yeah. celebrity status, That's the fair. upper crust. There's no Lin-Manuel Miranda's yet. Yeah. Um, in fact, part of why Charlotte enjoyed her status was because she avoided men. And people sort of said, here's an example of how you can be chaste and pure and still be a woman in theater. Uh, little did they know it was happening behind closed doors. Yeah. <laughs> She's clearly so well behaved and exactly what society wants uh-huh. and she is a lesbian. Yep, she's a fucking lesbian. Heck yeah. Um, so Charlotte at this time started collecting even more women sculptors, championing them, helping them secure commissions, um, and even going so far as to insult their male competitors and sort of try to ruin their careers. Yikes. Um, some other American sculptors on the scene include Margaret, a.k.a. Peggy Foley, um, who did cameos, medallions, busts, face work, you know. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorites, Edmonia Lewis, um, who was a black and native woman um, who came to Europe to get away from the situation in the U.S. That's fair. Not that things are always better in Europe, but uh, maybe more uh concealed yeah beneath a layer of civility um so she did many marble sculptures of native women and scorned biblical women uh yeah that That was sort of her niche amazing yeah um she was actually featured in a google doodle a couple of years ago and i said hey everybody do you know she was friends with all these lesbians like we don't know anything about her love life um and i don't know whether that is an intentional part to avoid, um, as a black woman having to like guard herself more closely. Mm. Um, whether she was a lesbian or not, we don't know. Um, maybe one day we'll know, we'll find some letter or something, but for right now it just seems she was unmarried for her life. Most of her life. All of her life. She never married. What am I saying? Most of her life. (laughs) Great. Um, so, uh, Charlotte got really, really involved in all these people's careers, um, but she missed the attention of the stage. Of course she did. Uh, the drama queen needs needs love, needs applause. Wow, I know so many people like that. <laughs> so in 1857, she returned to the U.S. Um, on a tour, doing some of her most famous roles, Lady Macbeth, Romeo, um... So Emma Stebbins came along with, but stayed in New York with her family, while Charlotte went on the western leg of her tour to Chicago and St. Louis. Uh, there she intended to meet Wayman Crow, who was Harriet's patron, and she hoped to get financial advice from him, see where she should be investing so that she could actually retire after she got some money on this tour. There she met Emma Crow, Wayman's daughter, mm-hmm. who fell hard for Charlotte after seeing her perform as Romeo. Uh, 
I must note, she was 18. Oh. And Charlotte was 42 at this point. Oh. Or 41. Uh, it was 1858 by the time they met. So, okay. 42. Yikes. Yes. Um, she described later on, Emma Crow described uh, never having seen it until then, it being Romeo and Juliet. Miss Cushman as Romeo seemed the incarnation of the ideal lover and realized all the dreams that flitted through a girl's fancy. That's gay. That's gay. That's so, a celebrity crush right there. Yeah. All these men, all these male critics writing at the time were like, I don't know how anyone could see this imposter as as Romeo, the the perfect lover, like well, like not the perfect lover, but you know, a famous male yeah. lover. Uh and meanwhile all the girls were like, it's better for us because she's a lady. I mean... So, for the two weeks that Charlotte was engaged in St. Louis, she spent almost all of her time with Emma. They would take afternoon carriage rides in the evening before the show. Charlotte, uh, Emma would visit her in her dressing room. And Emma said in her memoir, written decades later... Um, which is the only writing we have from Emma. I'll go more into that later. But it is difficult to describe wherein her charm lay. She had no physical beauty, as beauty is commonly rated. But when one came into her presence, it was as if one came to a warm fire when one had been cold and suddenly felt thawed out. Damn. Yeah. That's, like, poetic. Yeah, so apparently she that intense power and focus that Charlotte had when it was, like, on you and you alone was, a. Uh, captivating <laughs> so from that point on they started writing letters to each other mm-hmm. and this is sort of sickening like actually gross if i knew this couple in real life i would uh run away and shit talk them behind their backs uh charlotte would call emma her little lover and emma would call charlotte her lady lover with a capital l on lady <laughs> I don't love that because of, like, the age yeah. difference and the dynamic there. And also, what happened to the other Emma? Well, they were still together, and Charlotte considered Emma her wife. Okay. So, there's that. Um, we only have Charlotte's letters written to Emma. None of Emma survived. Charlotte uh, was constantly wary of public perception and what would be left behind when she died. Uh, so she implored Emma to burn her letters and said that I will destroy your letters so you can be as open as you want in your letters. She used it sort of as an incentive to say, you can write your true feelings because I will burn your letters. Yeah. It's it's like the protection of your emails aren't going to get hacked. Yeah. No, no one's going to find this. It's between us. So while it seems like Charlotte's letters were often very explicit, uh, she made constant reference to the fact that she was censoring herself and she would say, well, let's save the details for when we meet in person next. Um, she also kept records of all letters she sent and received and asked her lovers to do the same because she thought if a letter wound up in the dead letter office, one of her enemies would find it and use it against her. Damn. Yes. <laughs> um, so Charlotte was cautious, both because she was still in a committed relationship with the other Emma. And also because uh, this was Emma Crow's first relationship of any kind. 
she constantly tried to clarify in her letters, what kind of love are you saying? When you say you love me, what do you mean? Is What kind of love is this? Um, just trying to make sure, like, you know what we're getting into here, right? Mm -hmm. So after Charlotte went on the southern leg of her tour, she stopped back in St. Louis, um, specifically just to visit Emma Crow. And Emma Crow said, I want to visit you in your hotel. And, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just made a very aghast face of, yes. like, oh, shit. And Charlotte was like, uh, I don't think your dad will like that. But how about you arrange for an invitation so I can stay at your house? Yes. <laughs> Ballsy move. Yes. Um, so, stuff happened while they were there. They mentioned in letters, um, like, sharing a bed and exchanging kisses. But, which is, like, right at the line of romantic friendship to something mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. An explicitly lesbian relationship. Because sharing a bed, okay. Kisses between friends, even still sort of okay. Together? Mm. A little, a little. Yes. Oh, skeptical. Hold up, I'm pausing this for a sec. Continuing. So they started to try, they started planning a reunion, probably in Europe, um, weighing both uh, Wayman Crow's caution for his daughter and uh, Emma Stebbins' possible jealousy. Mm -hmm. So Charlotte started connecting Emma Crow with her family in about 1859, especially her nephew and adopted son, Ned. Um, when they met in October of 1859 in Rome, Emma, her sister Mary, and a chaperone came to visit. Uh, Ned was pretty taken with Emma. Yikes. Um, but Charlotte encouraged that. Huh. Yes. Just so Covering tracks, hiding the... Well, yeah, basically. Um, so Emma Crow was, in my notes I've written, horny and young and stupid. <laughs> At least that's how she comes off in all of Charlotte's letters. She's constantly turning her down, gently saying, like, not now. No, we need to be careful. There's prying eyes. Uh, so it's sort of, see, it's that constant thing of people always try to frame the younger one as the aggressor. Yeah. So I feel weird about that. But in one part, I really think it was true because Emma didn't know any better than to, like, hide that aspect of their love. Mm. Uh, she was very naive in that regard. So I'm not going to say she was the aggressor, but she certainly was more open with expressing those sentiments. That makes sense. Uh, so Emma Crow left Rome with a marriage arranged to Ned at Charlotte's urging. Um, even though Charlotte believed and said a lot of bad things about heterosexual marriage and, you know, how it enslaved women, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, but said, no, it's perfect for you, Emma. Mm. So they had to plan their wedding around Charlotte's performing schedule because Charlotte referred to the wedding as her ultimate entire union. It's all about her. So I, you see what I mean I, when I say she's a bastard, yeah, but I'm obsessed with her? I just, I, I'm... I'm grappling with the idea that you force someone that you know is in love with you to marriage your nephew, marry your nephew, 
because you have a wife, so to speak, so you need to hide any infidelity. And also, there's like a 20-year difference, actually 22-year difference. There's all of these things in place. So you force this your lover to marry your nephew and then make the whole marriage a, and like wedding about you. Yeah. It's just problematic on so many fronts. Yes. So prior, prior to the wedding, okay. uh, Charlotte planned for her and Emma to have another meeting, this time in Paris. Oh, shit. They boned in Paris. They boned in Paris. So prior to, uh, I'm going to read some saucy quotes here, prior to the meeting, I must send you one line to tell you that I long for you, want you, as perhaps you do not dream, that no human being exercises so peculiar a power as you do over me, and that I am not whole without you. I must be in the same hotel with you somewhere before I go to America. That's a lot. That's a lot. And also, consider when she says no human being exercises a power. She's got a wife. She does. Yeah. She does. So, yeah. Yes, but she said that she was still sort of proper and said, let Ned get a look at you before we meet back at the hotel. So, we don't know exactly what happened. Of course. But afterwards, Charlotte shared this in her letter. I wonder whether I ought to school myself to live without such love, but ah, how hard it would be now that I have tasted the sweets of such communion as it is given to few to know. Ah, my darling, do you remember our last night in Paris? Ah, what delirium is in the memory. Every nerve in me thrills as I look back and feel you in my arms, held to my heart so closely, so entirely mine in every sense as I was yours. Yeah, they boned. They boned in Paris. That's a... That's pretty graphic for yes. 19th century yes. letter writing. Yes. So you can see why Charlotte said, Emma, burn these letters. Yeah, I can I can kind of understand why that was uh, important to her. Hey, Emma, burn these letters. Guessing Emma did not burn these letters. No, Emma was very aware of, oh, Charlotte's famous and people are going to want to know about her. But I think a big part of it was, like, she was aware that there would be a time in her life, given the age difference, that she would live without Charlotte and mm-hmm. wanted something for herself as well. That's fair. Like, knowing when... Like, it's a keepsake, because you're not going to have a bunch of photos and selfies and things from them. There's no... Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there might be, like, I I don't even know. Like, what's the equivalent of a movie ticket? Uh, Because you weren't going to go see a play with Charlotte, because Charlotte was probably in the play. In the play, play, exactly. And I don't... I mean, I guess they did programs, but programs were very different back then. So, like, this this is your only keepsake of yes. all of your time together. I can see why you'd want to say yes. that. And so, if I was banging a famous artist, I'd probably <laughs> want records of it. Yeah. So, uh, and I think uh, in sometimes Charlotte was aware that Emma was saving her letters and was aware that it was probably the most thorough account of her time because as much as they exchanged these sentiments, it was also a lot of boring stuff like here's what Emma Stebbins and I did today. Mm. Here's how I'm feeling about my upcoming performance. Um, so Charlotte did want those parts preserved. Yeah. But she was also very cautious of 
presenting a socially acceptable face. Yeah. So, Ned and Emma are married. April 3rd, 1861. Uh, Charlotte was in attendance and then whisked back off to her touring schedule. Of course. In the U.S. Charlotte began to refer to Emma as her daughter. Uh, which Emma was understandably bothered by. Yeah. Um, Emma wanted the relationship to continue exactly as it had. Um, Charlotte wanted that, but she was also thinking about the future, about Emma having to actually live in a marriage with Ned. Whenever Charlotte wasn't around, they would be alone together. Um, and also thinking about Emma having children that would be Charlotte's in some way. Because she saw herself as, as the matriarch of the... She was the matriarch of the family. Yeah. Um, and she had arranged Emma and Ned's life together. So mm-hmm. she saw herself as responsible. And so the children were in some way hers. But she was like, no, really, they're mine. Yikes. Um, so she started wondering if she should censor her letters so that Emma could share them with the kids one day so that they'd have something to remember her by. Um uh. So, with regards to these changing roles and uh, Charlotte saying, you're my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote, dearest and sweetest daughter, niece, friend, and lover. Only think how many things combined in one of the, any one of those words. For surely any one in our case comprehends the whole. I could never have hoped to combine in one person so many happy relations as come to me through you, my darling, who never fails me. I'm sorry, can you repeat all of those titles? Daughter, niece, friend, and lover. That's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I... Again, I really understand why you're like, she's a bastard. She sucks. Yeah. Like, Emma's... I mean, I don't think she's 18 anymore, because this was 58. This is three years later, so she was in her 20s. She's in her early 20s. Early 20s. She's like 21, 22. Hor- like, horrifically in love with you. And you're, you've, like, relegated her to this, and you're like, all of these words describe our relationship. They shouldn't. Yeah. It's bad enough that you're cheating on your wife, and that you set her up with your son and nephew, but, like... God, uh, yeah. I, there's, I just don't know how to vocalize how yes, bad that is. There's also, there's some weird stuff where, um, as Charlotte was returning to Rome with Emma, and Emma Crow was, thre- was sort of fretting about, I have to live with Ned? Um, Charlotte wrote, oh dear, if I were only a man, that I could teach him how to care for a woman. So there's some weird, weird stuff here. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, for a time, Emma and Ned lived in Boston, and then after Emma had a miscarriage, um, they moved back to St. Louis to be closer to her family. That's fair. Um, the Civil War began, which is a major thing at this time, but actually not a major thing in this story because of the international... Interesting. Uh, aspect. Uh, Charlotte was very concerned for her family there, for Emma and Ned, um, but she was also really interested in the political aspects of the war. Uh, there's that masculine spirit again, you know. Um, being interested in politics and world affairs. Because only men can only have men. that. Yes. Uh, she was staunchly pro-union. And she even returned to the U.S. in 1863 to perform in five cities as a benefit for the American Sanitary Commission. 
she, while she was there, she performed for Abraham Lincoln. Okay. She was good friends with the Secretary of State, William Seward. Okay. Um, and Emma was around at this time. She went on most of the tour with her. Um, and so Emma was really happy about that because she was like, oh, yes, finally things are back to how we were before I got married to Ned. Mm-hmm. Um, then once Charlotte returned to Rome, she started getting bored again. And Emma Stebbins was very, very busy. She was commissioned for a statue of Horace Mann. That was a big deal. Um, she was commissioned for a fountain, the the centerpiece of a fountain in Central Park. Oh, wow. Which is her most famous sculpture called Angel of the Waters. Huh. Um, so if you look her up, that's what you'll see. Um, and Charlotte didn't work in Rome. She was very bored. So she made Nev and Emma her pet project. Of course. She arranged for the couple to come to England for the birth of their first child, Wayman Crow, Cushman, Wayman Crow, Cushman, in October 1864. Uh, Charlotte, Emma Stebbins, and Sally Mercer were all in attendance. And for Charlotte was present for the birth of their next three sons as well, Alberton, Edward, Edwin, and Victor. Hmm. Yes. Um, and Charlotte was very happy that they had boys. They both wanted a woman because they were both uh, engaged in all these homosocial relationships. They wanted a daughter to carry on that mm. aspect. Um, but Charlotte was so happy that they had sons because then they could carry on the Cushman name uh, for her. Of course. Yes. Of course. So Charlotte referred to herself at this time as Big Mama, fitting with both the role she played as a mentor to women in Rome and uh, her weird position as matriarchy in the Cushman family. Yep. Yes. Uh, she then arranged, via her connection with William Seward, the Secretary of State, to have Ned appointed as the American consul in Rome. So in 1865, they moved over to Rome, and they all lived in one house together. Uh, Hattie had moved out into her own place with her own girlfriend. Oh, good. I was like, Hattie deserves some yes. nice, positive things. So there was space for Emma and Ned and a baby. But obviously that created some tension for the two Emmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, she arranged for her and Emma Stevens to even be out of the country when Ned and Emma arrived. Uh, to sort of delay that and say, oh, it's not such a big deal to me that they're moving in. I can be out of town even. So they arrived, but uh, it took a toll on the relationship between Emma Stevens and Charlotte Cushman. Of course. Uh, understandably, Emma Stevens, you're so valid. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in 1867, Charlotte commented in a letter to a friend that though they were getting along better while on a vacation in the U.S., Emma Stebbins had become less demonstrative of her love for Charlotte, whatever that may mean. Well, ma'am, yeah. you're... You, you have moved, a love in-house you, mistress. Yeah, like, you <laughs> moved your mistress in-house just because you married her off to your nephew's son doesn't mean she's not your mistress yes and there's i mean i don't know when emma stubbins found out about it but there's no way she didn't know at this point in time yeah yes (laughs) so we don't really know how physical the relationship between charlotte and emma stubbins was Mm -hmm. because emma stubbins was much more concerned with propriety Mm -hmm. um she had that upper class family to worry about she had her own career to worry about um and she was just generally more proper so we don't know if she would have allowed any physicality, but whatever the demonstrative nature of the relationship was, was 
gone at this point. Okay. Um, and then we're nearing the end, unfortunately. In the spring of 1869, Charlotte was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, she tried a water cure, as uh, many did at this point in time. Um, spa treatments. Mm. Um, but she even tried surgery. Uh, and, but she remained ill. Damn. Um, around this time, there was the strain of the two Emmas living in a house together. There was her health to think about. Mm-hmm. And Hattie's friendship with Charlotte ended. Actually, uh, as a result of a fight between Ned and Hattie. Oh, damn. Yes, it was a whole thing about fox hunting. <laughs> like, um, literally? Or is that yes. an euphemism? No, really about fox hunting. Apparently, um... The Italians would invite the American expatriates along for fox hunting, but they never awarded them honors. And so Ned and Hattie said, well, we're not going to go anymore. Um, But then Hattie got invited and accepted. And Ned was mad. And Charlotte said, I can't believe you slighted my nephew like this. I take this as a slight against me. That is, is... Semi-valid? Like, I would understand we said we weren't gonna go because yeah, I was like a excluded. sitcom plot, really. Like, I could understand being a little peeved. I don't know if I would end a friendship yes. over that. And Hattie was of the opinion that if Charlotte wanted to restore the relationship, that she needed to, she needed to be courted. That Hattie needed to be the one approached and forgiven, or, like, apologized to. Yeah. I mean... Uh, Patty maybe should have apologized for doing the thing without at least giving yeah. that a heads up, but like she didn't end the friendship. If you're the whoever ends well, the friendship is kind of the one who has to. Yes. So, but then at the same time, I'm like, Charlotte has fucking cancer. That's and you're true. like, chase me. That's she's fair. got stuff on her mind, Harry. Fair. <laughs> I know it's like one of those sucky situations. Yeah. Just like wrong, wrong time. It really is a sitcom plot. Yes. So, their friendship ended in 1870, and the whole Cushman household departed Rome for the United States. Um, Charlotte, Emma Stebbins, and Sally Mercer wound up in Hyde Park, New York, where Emma Stebbins' family lived, mm-hmm. and Emma Crow and Ned returned to St. Louis. Uh, though she intended to rest and divide her time between the Emmas as her health allowed her, mm-hmm. she was called back to the stage. She's, you have cancer. <laughs> well, see, now that she didn't really want to perform, people are offering her twice as much money to perform. Damn. I think even, is Edwin Booth related to that Booth? Well, according to Wikipedia, Edwin Thomas Booth, the American actor who would found Booth's Theater in New York, is the brother of John Wilkes Booth, who, uh... Who what? Murdered the president. Yeah. So he offered uh, Charlotte a lot of money and the best terms to return to the stage in New York City. So she did. She did. (laughs) Yes. Uh, She made her return in 1871 and she continued until it became too difficult. Um, When full performances were too tiring, she started doing staged readings. She did her last actual last farewell tour in 1874 um though she intended to continue doing readings of course of course need the limelight of course um at the celebration that followed her final performance in new york city as lady macbeth she declared 
that art is an absolute mistress, announcing to a crowd of fans that she had spent her life dedicated completely to an art she characterized as a woman. Hmm. Which, uh, ballsy. Pretty ballsy. Yeah. See, this is why I can't... I can't... She keeps pulling me back. She's pulling you back. She does shitty things, but then she's also, like, pretty iconic. She spent her whole life uplifting women artists. Yeah, she created... I don't know how much we, like, talked about the actual, like, artist colony, but you just kept describing more and more artists that were, like part of her circle in Rome that were all, like, sculptors and writers. Yes. And so, like, she just created this community of women artists who, it sounds like a fair amount of them were women-loving women, who, yeah. uh... Pretty much all of them. Edmonia Lewis is the only one who we don't know for sure. Damn. Like, yeah, that's ballsy. And then she she finishes her career basically being like, yeah. I did it for theater. My lover. My lady lover. My lady lover. Yes. Um, so she died February 18th, 1876. She was 59. Hmm. Um, so some stuff happened after she died where at first people said, oh, she was the perfect woman of the arts. Like we thought theater women were terrible until she came along and showed us you could be chaste and pure and free from the corrupting influence of men. Like, pastors were giving, uh, uh, what's it called? Speeches. Sermons. Sermons? I was <laughs> like, out of, out of the two of us, I'm not the Christian here. <laughs> um, she was giving sermons, they gave sermons about, like, here's the lessons we can learn from Charlotte Cushman's life. And all of them referenced, like, purity and chastity. Hmm. They boned in Paris! Yeah. Friendly I mean, reminder. Not that, not that boning in Paris doesn't make you... Pure, but they but basically like, thought like she died a virgin. Yeah, Isn't that that's, great? That's not how that went. <laughs> um, but then as the years went on, um, Stebbins appointed herself like the the uh, the heir to the Charlotte Cushman legacy and the curator of her legacy. She was her wife. Yes, in all but legality. Yes, and apparently on Charlotte's deathbed. While Emma Stevens would sort of run from the room or cover her ears mm-hmm. every time Charlotte discussed funeral arrangements and stuff like that with Ned and Emma, uh, the one thing that she'd really promised was that she would write a memoir about Charlotte Cushman. But she totally cleansed all of the erotic undertones of her life from um, the memoirs. Well, yes, because she, she was the very proper one from the yes. upper class family. So while she like went on and on about all that Charlotte had done for her and their great friendship, uh, Emma Crow gets a single mention as the niece and mother of the children that Charlotte was devoted to. Uh, her relationship with Matilda Hayes and Rosalie Sully, those don't make it in at all. Uh, and she constantly talks about her as like this paragon of virtue. So so how did we find out all of the the lesbianism? Well, uh, as public perceptions around romantic friendship between women changed, mm-hmm. uh, and sexology theories grew more prominent in the English-speaking world, mm-hmm. uh, people started to identify things in Charlotte Cushman uh, about both, like, phrenology things about like oh her large struck her large stature and her square-jawed face mm-hmm. um means she's prone to lesbianism 
um, her propensity for breaches roles, which also Emma Stebbins didn't really mention of course not. in the memoir. Um, was her one of the ones you've talked about the most is the Romeo one, which mm. seems like a very famous one was a breaches role, and that yes. just got left out entirely? Pretty much. No Romeo, no Hamlet, etc. Yeah. That's shitty. So, and then as like, the average person began to be, basically could have identified Charlotte as a lesbian, Mm -hmm. as, like, knowledge of lesbianism became more mainstream, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's when she really just faded from conversations about theater. Um, Damn. Yeah, and all these, like, men who had never even seen her perform writing about her said, I don't know how she got so popular looking the way she did, and uh, all that, and also using even, like, the masculine elements of her performance against her that, like, oh, she was too, she gestured too broadly and she stomped around the stage, and... But that was what people liked about Exactly. Her. And especially women. Most of her fans were women. Interesting. So she was very well known, and Emma Stubbins' memoir didn't, like, actually encourage that, but then as we started learning... And, and, then, and then men were like, oh, fuck her. Yeah, and then uh, uh, Emma Crow's children, or her child Victor, her youngest son, and mm-hmm. his wife, donated all of Charlotte Cushman's letters to the Library of Congress. Um, and several women throughout the 20th century identified uh, Charlotte as one of them and started writing memoirs. Mm-hmm. Um, several but none of them actually came to be anything until Elisa Merrill, um, who is a professor at Hofstra College who studies performance and gender and a whole mismatch of liberal arts things. Um, But I would say mostly like theater history and history through theater. Cool. um, Picked up Charlotte Cushman as her her passion project. Nice. and there's a little bit at the end of her book, When Romeo Was a Woman, that I just have to read. I, like, I teared up reading it, I think. Um, but despite the editing, the trivializing, and the diminishing of her reputation in the years since she died, Charlotte Cushman, the artifact, was there all along, and the letters she left, and the reactions and reviews of those who saw her. She was there for the critics, for Jenny Lorenz, another woman who uh, started writing about Charlotte Cushman, for Emma Stebbins, and for Emma Crow. I imagine her somewhere, and she is winking, knowing I have looked for her in the possibilities and foreclosures of her era and in the constructions of ours. She will continue to change as more letters, hints, gossip, and diaries surface, and as more women who love women talk about their desire and look to an artifact, an icon, a star, for, for personifications of that passion. Damn. Yeah. So, I, I want to end with how Charlotte saw herself, I guess. Yeah. Um, she referred to the woman in her life as her lovers, to Emma Stebbins as her wife. Mm-hmm. It, there's no doubt that those relationships were romantic and at times sexual. Uh, she spoke of her adhesive nature, it was a term she used, which was a term from phrenology that Walt Whitman also used to describe himself. Um, it was usually a pejorative term um, to describe those with unnaturally strong same-sex attachments. So she used... Co- the language of her day mm-hmm. to describe herself. This was before like inversion became the predominant term. Yeah. Um, she once told Emma Crow 
that she could have seen herself marrying a man, or not that she could have seen herself marrying a man, but that there were men she had met that she could stand to be married to. Ah. But there were only one or two out there, which sounds a little like compulsory heterosexuality. Yeah, also it's it's very notable that her phrasing was, could stand. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's exactly to, how she phrased it, but... But like, the emotion of that kind of phrasing is yeah. very... And the implication also being that she was afforded greater independence as long as she remained dedicated to other women and her career. Uh, And that independence was what was most important to her. She wanted to continue her career. Um, But I think it's also important to note that this was a time before sexual identity became the predominant language. Mm -hmm. Um, It was about your actions, not who you were. And her actions were she never had a relationship with a man. Even, like, a significant uh, social relationship, really. Yeah. Outside of her family. Like, she cared for Ned deeply as her nephew and adopted son, but there were no men in her life, really. It's a whole lot of women. A whole lot of women. And all of her long-term relationships were with women. So, by her actions, I identify her as a lesbian. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's always hard as a historian because the, the term didn't exist, but part of our job is to look at what we know and apply, well, not force and, like, apply contemporary language, but, like, make, draw the connection and say, mm. if the term existed, she probably would say, this is who I was. Yeah. And that's, I mean. Yeah. And that's, it's so interesting because there's so many individuals in history that, as, as a historian existing in 2019, we now know we're very queer. We're members of the LGBTQIA plus community in some way. Yeah. But we don't know the specifics because, again, history doesn't favor homosexuality. As yes. we, we, I talked about in my first ever episode of LGBT Time Machine, there's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of erasure. And even up until, like, the 90s and the early 2000s, it wasn't cool to be out. It was, like, a very yeah. damaging thing that it's, like, the, the mid-2000s, 2010s, where that really started changing, which is awesome. And not to say that there weren't people who were out and proud and living their best lives. But it society as a whole didn't accept it, and so so yeah. much of history has been erased and been yeah. cleansed. And I this, the segment you read about the end of When Romeo Was a Woman was, like, hit me very hard because... It was kind of talking about, like, of all the ways that she was hidden, but how she still exists as an artifact for people. I think that's why I really wanted you to come talk about her, because she, in all all senses of the word, wasn't necessarily important to LGBTQ plus history on the whole. Like, she didn't start a movement or do anything, but she existed and was very ballsy about that existence and and refused to hide it. Women at her time, her fans, identified her as a lover of women and throughout history other historians have identified her and sort of been obsessed with her the way I am yeah um because we see ourselves in her um but I also think it's important to mention that the position she enjoyed was a large part of privilege and circumstance and Mm -hmm. luck yeah um that she existed at a time in the west when 
people largely thought that white middle-class women were not physically capable mm-hmm. of experiencing sexual desire or pleasure. Um, so her relationships were sort of free from the specter of suspicion. Yeah. As a result of that. Um, well, and it's also, it's a couple of decades later is when women who started showing signs of that were institutionalized. Yeah. So she she was very lucky of the decade she was she, yes. the decades and like centuries she existed in. The like of that too. clearly there was risk. Yeah. I mean she with her relationship with Matilda Hayes, with her caution to Emma Crow, mm-hmm. she was always there was a danger present. Oh yeah. Um and uh, even like public sources at the time, society would mention that it was dangerous for two women to be too close. Mm-hmm. They just didn't say what the danger was. Yeah, it it was a lot of ost- like they would be ostracized. She would never really work in theater again. Yeah. She or that and all like, of her lovers would kind of like Emma Emma Stubbins could lose any money that her family had given her. Yeah, they could, her own career would suffer because yeah. all of her commissions came through Charlotte. Um, Emma Crow could lose custody of her children. Yeah. Um, that was all still very, like... Yeah. It was never Ned really would be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Um, Ned would be within his rights to do basically whatever he wanted as yeah. the husband who discovered his wife yeah. was engaging in that kind of behavior could... Yes. A lot a lot of really negative consequences could so, have occurred. I And then at the same time, like, there were still... There were, like, all these stories about, like... Uh, you know, there were exotified stories about um, women from other places in the world, other races, other nationalities, other classes. Um, so it seems like lesbian relationships have always been under this, like, two-sided, very two drastic different poles of opinion mm-hmm. about either completely platonic, incapable of eroticism or like, women off the rails outside of the bounds of heterosexual marriage, totally lustful and out of control. Oh, yeah. Well, so, Western civilization had... There, there is no in-between in a lot of history. It's one or even the Even now. I mean, you either have... You have lesbian porn made for men mm-hmm. as the predominant, visual, like, image of yeah. lesbian relationships, or you have, like... Oh, two soft little like ladies holding hands. Well, and I mean, living together, but nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. I mean, my Hall- grandma's roommate. Right. <laughs> well, in Hallmark, I think they they just now reversed it, but this week pulled an ad that was two brides kissing because Hallmark can't do PDA. Yeah. And like after everyone threw a shit fit, right? Like righteously, they reversed the decision. But like it's, it's mid December twenty nineteen. Yes. And a major media corporation is quite bigoted still. Yeah. So it's... A lot to think about there. A lot to think about. How stories from the past can uh, teach us stuff about today. Yeah. The one thing I want to encourage everyone to do is when you read about historical figures, always, and just any kind of history, always consider who was telling the story. Mm. I feel like that's such an important thing of everything you consume has been altered by the person who created it. Everyone has an agenda. Everyone has an agenda. Emma Stubbins wanted her friendship to be pure and chaste and not go be sinful in any way. And so a lot of memoirs were from that. 
men wanted to write about how women shouldn't do breaches roles, so they said she's a phony imposter. Yeah, so just keep consider that everything you know about history, everything I know and try to research, is from the point of view of someone, and that someone is always trying to tell some kind of story, whether it's true or not, is why history is such a fascinating subject to me, because it involves a lot of research and a lot of cross-referencing and putting, like, investigating. You're putting together pieces of a puzzle that happened hundreds of years ago in the hopes of giving it some truth. Yes. So if you want to do more reading about Charlotte Cushman and uh, the women who surrounded her, um, the book I got most of my research from was When Romeo Was a Woman, Charlotte Cushman and Her Circle of Female Spectators by Lisa Merrill. Um, And then for other books about romantic friendship, uh, Surpassing the Love of Men, Romantic Friendship and Love from the Renaissance to the Present by our friend Lillian Vaderman. (laughs) Friend of the podcast. So many many books there. (laughs) She's just, she is a historian who... There's not a lot of LGBTQ plus historians out there, and she is one who has made a niche for herself. Yes. Um, and then they're almost impossible to find, but both Emma Stebbins and Emma Crocushman wrote memoirs um, about Charlotte. Emma Stebbins is a little more popular because she was more famous. Yep. Uh, Charlotte Cushman, her letters and memories of her life. But there's literally no mention of, uh, you know, her lesbianism. It's more about... Uh, the bastard she was. No. She wasn't a bastard in the memoirs. <laughs> I was like, I feel like it would be the opposite. Yeah. That's like a scrubbed version of her life. Um, her acting career and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and so all of those will be on the website as suggested reading, as always. Uh, Smith also has some photos of the letters that yeah, will be put on the Google Drive and shared on social media. So keep an eye out on those. Before I say goodbye, I wanted to take the opportunity, as always, to plug a podcast on my network. So, yeah, this week, check out the Argonauts podcast, where Andrew tries to solve alternate reality games, and Marn tells him what he should have done instead. Marn happens to be one of Smith and I's best friends. Marnie rocks! She does. And both she and Andrew are super knowledgeable, super funny, and just all-around great people and podcasters. Mm -hmm. I love working with them on the Orange Groves, and I think this podcast, I knew nothing about ARGs before... I listen to it, and it's it's such a great introduction because it's it's knowledgeable. It tells you all the info you need, but it's just fun, it's too. It's fun. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> check that out. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. Hi, I'm Marn. This is the Argonauts Podcast. Each week, I'm going to try and solve an old defunct ARG, and Marn's going to tell me what I should have done instead. That's true. Marn, what ARGs have we covered so far? So far, we have covered Spectacular Organic Frog Fractions 2, Sexy Girl Max 2019, and this is my Milwaukee. And that list is only going to continue to grow. Yep. Come check us out every other Thursday on the Orange Groves Network. And you can find us at ArgonautsPod.com. me of course um i hope you learned something interesting today next episode i'll probably be looking at the late 1970s and the early 1980s which will deal with the renewed religious persecution the hiv outbreak and more if you want to learn more check out our website for this episode's sources and some recommendations on further reading that you can do if you have any questions feel free to chat with me on twitter at time lgbtq or on my personal twitter at fairy prince theo you can check out smith at 
Uh, my Twitter is Smith Illustrate. That's where I post all my art um, and any sort of frustrations I have with the outer art world. There we go. Um, until then, this was LGB Time Machine with Theo and Smith. Thank you to the Orange Groves for hosting us. Thank you to you for listening. Love and light to you. I'll speak to you all next time. Bye.